Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Radio Free Mormon. Here we are. It is two weeks away from Christmas or less, really. Uh, Ten days, technically. Tonight is December 15th, 2021. There are nine shopping days left before Christmas. We're one week away from Joseph Smith's birthday. Uh, That is, uh, yeah, one week and one day. Yeah, December 23rd. Merry Smithmas to you. Well, thank you. Merry Smithmas to you. You know, that's not easy to say three times fast. (laughs) No, it's not. That's why Sally's gathering seashells right now by the seashells. <laughs> we'll have to have a special episode next yeah. week about that uh, or something about maybe Jesus. I don't know. Could we work yeah, Jesus in, do you think? Yeah, I think we're going to work on a little historical Jesus. We're going to talk about some of the things that are in the four gospel accounts about the Savior and Messiah himself that just maybe they're not the way we were told. Yes, and I know that you've done a lot of research on that very, very subject. And it's a vast subject and very complicated. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say to us. Yeah, I'm sure you'll have some things to add to this will be exciting. Uh, for the folks who are tuned in right now, if you would hit the like button or subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, don't uh, don't hesitate to put comments uh, over there on that side of the screen. And uh, we'd love if uh, we could wrap up the year with a, a few donations from you folks. And I just want to say, by the way, our fam, We've had a great 2021, and donations have been really good. Growth uh, in the podcast uh, umbrella has been fantastic. And I just want to thank everybody out there uh, who listens to you or me or Marriage on a Tightrope or Rami Umpton Ruminations, uh, Backyard Professor, and all the other things that we're doing. Uh, We've got some uh, female voices that are going to be, they've already got some kind of pilot episodes out and We'll have some uh, new podcast out with female uh, podcast host come January. And we're really excited about that. And so, folks, we just want to say thank you to each of you for your support of our program, for listening, uh, for sharing, and for those who donate. Thank you very, very much. And Merry Christmas to all of you guys as you've got the next 10 days here to to get ready for uh, the celebration of the birth of uh, Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. And eight days to for Joseph Smith. You got it. And so you're in charge tonight, my friend. I'll turn the time over to you. It has been such a busy week. My goodness, Bill. Last night I'm presenting, it was over two hours at uh, the group that uh, is called Mormonism and Western Esotericism. I always have to think about that last word because I immediately go to eroticism, but that's not right. It's esotericism. That's where I was. (laughs) And that went wonderfully. And I posted the audio to it uh, this morning. Tonight we've got this show Friday morning. I'm uh, joining John Delaney and interviewing Dan Vogel. Awesome. Excellent. At 7 o'clock in the morning, my time. So this has been a very, very busy week, but exciting and fun, and I'm having a great time. Good, good. Well, it, yeah, it's good to keep busy, and you certainly do, my friend. Yes. Now, talking about tonight, tonight we have a very, very special guest. He's someone that it is unlikely that you've heard of. Maybe you have, but he's here to talk to us. He is a seasoned gentleman He's actually older than I am. 
And so that's what my goal is when we have guests on the show is to have them older than I am. So I don't, I can feel younger. You're the spring chicken. Yes. But he had an incredible experience on his mission, uh, which caused some severe depression. And so bad it was that uh, it's kind of followed him throughout his life. And he wants to talk about that with us. And um, I mean, nothing goes together really like Christmas and depression. Yeah. Sometimes the holidays can be rough, can't they? Yes, absolutely. I've got my own thoughts on that, but as to why that is, because it's definitely a a phenomenon that's pretty widely recognized. But maybe we'll get into that with Barry Richens, who is the name of our guest. If we could bring him out of the green room. Hello, Barry Richens. How are you doing tonight? Fine. And and I'm 20 years older than you are. Yeah, I didn't want to hit that too hard (laughs) because you're making me feel really young tonight. Okay. Yeah, I, I can remember the church when I was a racist and I was taught kind of from the pulpit and from my neighborhood. You know, that's how old I am. What, what is it you can remember? When I was brought up as a racist, not a, okay. hating, not a hating racist, but just to judge people that were inferior, that, that people, t- I was told they were, in, people were inferior and I, I just believed it. Mormonism yeah. makes a biggest bigot of us all. It does. It does. I mean, I'm 20 years younger than you, and I had the same experience. But unlike you two guys, I inherited my religion. Seriously. I didn't choose it. Because you were born into it? Right. Uh, Yeah, I I didn't choose it, and I I inherited my culture. And even though I'm not a non-Mormon, and I I certainly am not a friend of the organization of the church, uh, I am a Mormon boy. I am completely and totally and still a Mormon boy, and I frequently catch myself thinking of those things. Yep. And some of the bad things, I have to think myself out of them. Right. No, no. Uh, one of the beauties of religion, and Mormonism in particular, is that it makes us feel better about ourselves because we can judge others as less than ourselves. Amen. Yeah. I think more, Mark Twain said something about it, and I wish I could remember it so I could sound like you, RFM. Okay. Well, we'll just pretend that you said it, and it was very witty and humorous. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, so can you tell us, uh, I know that you're about 80, you are 80 years old? Yeah, 80 and a half, I guess. I'm guessing you're retired. Yeah, I retired about five years ago. And what was your career? It was teaching, correct? Yeah, I, I, uh, I was a community college professor, and I worked at my, my college for about 41 years. What subjects did you teach? Well, I... I went to graduate school feeling very uh, not very well prepared to go. And so I wasn't, I didn't think I was a good writer. So instead of getting a doctorate, I, I pursued two different masters. I, I did a master's in English and all the work for a master's in Spanish and then especially in, in reading. So that's what I was prepared for in, in the Arizona Community College. And in those days we had to be licensed. And that, so that's, that was my licensure reading Spanish and English. And before we started the show, you were regaling us with the number of languages that you can speak and read. And I lost track around 20. <laughs> uh, careful, my earphones won't fit. Um, but but what I, what I want to say is I learned to speak Spanish. In, in college, my first semester, I got a D. And the second semester, I did much better. I got an F. And uh, by accident, I chose to go to Mexico City 
because a history teacher was offering a course in summer school in Mexico City. So okay, I Barry, Barry, this is going to be very important, I think, to your story. This is before you went on your mission? Yeah, before I went on my mission. And so I, I, I couldn't speak Spanish all the time I was down there. And so when I came home about six months later, my, uh, my, mis- my bishop called me and said, would you like to go on a mission? I thought, yeah. And he said, anywhere special? I said, well, my dad went to Germany and Switzerland and he used to show pictures of it. And I fell in love with it. And so I end up in Mexico and I thought, I don't want to ever go back to Mexico and, and live, you know, because I, it was hard. But I loved the people and I loved the culture so much. But And I loved my mission. But I learned to speak Spanish really well and fast. But what I didn't do was that I hadn't really been prepared for it. So I had to work, work, work really hard. It's the hardest work I think I ever did was to learn Spanish. And uh, so after my mission, I, I, I went, I had to live, uh, while I was going to finish up my senior year in college, I lived with a family that... Uh, my, my buddy was the professor at NAU, and his wife, he was from Uruguay, and his wife was from Brazil. And uh, so he asked me to come and live with him at the time because his wife was kind of afraid at night when he was teaching uh, night classes at the university. And he said, you can do that, Bear. And I said, okay. And uh, so, but she was the class A, she was a class A personality. So in that ho- at home, we didn't speak Spanish. We spoke, spoke Portuguese. I had to learn it. So when I went off to graduate school at Iowa, I took some Portuguese classes. And, and so I learned Portuguese. And then one day I said, geez, I don't know anything about French. So I sat down, but I knew how to learn a language now. So I sat down and, and uh, especially a romance language. And I taught myself to speak some French, not very well, but, to, but I taught myself to read well. And then I decided, well, I'll, I'll do the same thing uh, with Italian. And, and I sat down one, one summer and I took a month and I did every lesson in the, in the book and all of the exercises in a month. And then I started reading the Book of Mormon in Spanish. So, I mean, Portuguese, Italian. So I read the Book of Mormon in Spanish, French, Portuguese, and halfway in Italian, and I read it in English. And I did take Russian when I was a kid, but that's all. I can say, das bibania, and I can say, yeah, Tavarish. Yes, comrade. So well, yeah. I'll tell you, I've read the Book of Mormon in one of those languages you mentioned. And, and it was just, a, it wasn't anything to brag about. It was just a hobby. Yes. And the Book well, of Mormon was so cheap that I could buy an English and a Portuguese Book of Mormon for about a buck and a half. And so I'd have them open while I was teaching me. And I could do the same thing with Italian and, and, and Spanish and Portuguese. And so it was... It, I wasn't trying to prove anything to anything, but just to myself. Well, you were so hardworking, even on your mission, that you became a traveling elder. Is that correct? I did. Can you explain to the audience what a traveling elder is? Because I'm not sure we use that nomenclature anymore. I I, I don't hear it anymore. But uh, when I got to the mission, like I told you, I didn't speak any Spanish. Other than that, what I'd learned in college. And you can tell by my grades how great I was. But... uh, I decided that I was really, really going to do something. And by the, so within two or three months, I had mastered all of the lessons and had them in my mind and I could speak Spanish fluently. One day I was sitting in this room and my, my missionary companion says, 
see that beautiful lady over there? He says, she speaks perfect Spanish. And so I was sitting there with my back turned to her one day and she was talking and all of a sudden out of the blue, what sounded like long pieces of spaghetti coming out of her mouth started clipping off into meaningful units. It was like, like a, like a hallelujah or one of those eureka moments that kind of like hallelujah, you know, and all of a sudden I, I could, I could understand her. And so by three months into the mission, I was kind of a star. People were talking about me. And so mission president called me to be the companion to the traveling elder. And our job was to go around all over the mission and make trips and visit with each missionary couple. And then we would go on splits and, and also we'd be there to help them with anything they had and, and give them ideas and, and, and comments and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that's what, that was my first calling in the mission. So as I understand it, being a traveling elder means that you have a special status. You are seen as being a very hardworking missionary, very faithful, very uh, efficient and capable. And because of that, the mission president wants to spread what you know around the mission. And hopefully you can teach other elders to be as good as you. Yeah. And as bad a student as I've been at Bill and, and uh, RFM, I graduated somewhere in my class from high school. And I once saw my transcript by accident, and it was it right in the very middle, 500 in the class, 250 me. Uh, and and uh, so I never had much confidence in myself as, as a learner. I always thought I was dumb. And so when people started treating me as if I were smart, man, I fell in love with my mission. I fell in love with it. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was somebody important. And people would come up and say, you're so smart. And I'm going, huh? A <laughs> couple of points of order, Barry. Uh, your mission was where in Mexico? I was in the West Mexican mission. And the states of my mission, our headquarters was in Hermosillo, which is the capital of Sonora. And our mission had Baja and, and the Baja California, upper and lower Baja California. And then they had Sonora. And below Sonora, there's a state called Sinaloa. And if you've ever heard of Mazatlan, Mazatlan is in the state of Sinaloa. And then there's one more state south of Sinaloa called Nayarit. And it's it's right next to Jalisco. So it was a big, long mission. What and was the we, year? Oh, sorry. I thought you I, went I apologize. To, no, I got there in, 19, in February of 1961. Was it a two-year mission back then as well or three-year? Two, two and a half. And the half year was for to give uh, the elder or the sister time to learn the language so okay. that you could be productive for at least two years. So you're having a great time in the sense of you are being recognized for your abilities, something that you didn't even think that you had before you went on your mission. You're being given some esteem, some you know, nice. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I used to be really smart, but there was an A something else that followed it. That was the kind of kid I was. I was a smart, you figured it out. And and, and so I kind of had an idea that I was clever, but I didn't have an idea that I was knowledgeable. Some of us never outgrow that. I don't. I haven't. I will, say, <laughs> I will say that when I joined Mormonism, Mormonism was the first thing that I had done in my life that I did really well. Um, I played sports and I made some all-star teams and did some other things. But Mormonism was the first thing that I was just consistently good at. And uh, I can I can relate to that story, Barry. Yeah. There's a shattering event that happens sort of midway through your mission. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, 
I, I was into my mission about a, a year and a half. So it was around July or August of 1962. I, I went to bed one night, uh, and I'll tell you later uh, the things behind it. But I went to bed one night, and I was visiting with the elders over my zone. I was a zone leader, but I was returning from Hermosillo with my brand new companion to go back to my town, which is about 40 miles south of Los Mochis. And while in Los Mochis, we, we had a party with the branch members, and uh, I was so happy. And I remember we had so much fun. And I went to bed full of happiness and joy. And the next morning, I woke up and I, we were, I was sleeping on the floor because we had to borrow one of the elders' mattresses. They probably had a two-mattress bed. And so my companion and I slept on the floor. And I woke up and I was looking at the ceiling. All of a sudden, I had this horrible feeling that something was wrong with me. I didn't know then, but I felt I didn't know what to say about it. And I learned, didn't learn until about 20 or 30 years after my mission what had happened. Uh, but I felt broken. I felt broken. I, I, I thought to myself, something's wrong. What's wrong with me? Well, in talking to a psychiatrist about 20 or 30 years after my mission, she said, Barry, what happened to you is you had a, you had a breakdown. I said, mental or physical? She said, does it matter? She says, when the body or the mind gets under too much stress, it will turn off. The mind will turn off the body or the body will turn off the mind. And I, I, so I, I, she said, I said, you had a breakdown. And, and I'd had a breakdown, but I didn't know it. And so within two or three days, I was so scared. Can we say that? I was so afraid. That's my kid coming out of me. I was so afraid that I, I would go out to work. And I'd be out there about an hour or two that my knees would turn to rubber. And all of a sudden, I started feeling this terrible anxiety and this terrible uh, fear and the shame that I had done something terribly wrong because I couldn't function as a missionary. And within, within two or three days, I was suicidal. I was looking for places to kill myself. Okay, now this is just remarkable because... The way you're expressing it, you went from being having a great time on your mission, having a party that night. You're one and a half years into it. You're a zone leader. You're a model missionary. The mission president obviously thinks so, and he's spreading you around as a traveling elder. Then you wake up the next morning, and all of a sudden, you feel broken. Now, I'm not a psychologist, okay? But that suggests that you had been repressing some feelings for maybe a long period of time. That's true, you know. RFM. Uh, my father had died two years before I went on my mission, and and I think I was processing that, and I I hadn't done a very good job of it. Uh, and uh, and then on the mission, you know, being on a mission is hard, and, and you know that RFM. You know how hard it is, and you give more than you're really capable of giving. And you know, I used to teach for the Peace Corps. I used to teach Spanish for Peace Corps Ecuador. I spent two summers doing it at Montana State University. And in that group, we had engineers. I mean, guys who taught engineering. We had guys who taught carpentry and, and electricity. And we had ladies who, and, and who taught home ec. And we, and we more than those, uh, those professionals, we had all kinds of, of psychologists and, uh, and psychiatrists to look at all, because we had about 40 or 50 people in, that were there to go to Ecuador. 
And one of the things that they were, they had, I couldn't understand why they had so many psychologists and, and psychiatrists, but they were there to weed out the group. There's such thing, uh, it's called culture shock. When you go on a mission, especially like you went to Japan and I went to Mexico, you're, let me see, I've got a note that I wrote to myself. You're meeting a new people and they don't look like you. And they don't think like you. They don't eat like you. So you've got a new eth ethnicity. You have to learn a whole new way to think and go. Then and, and they have faces you're not you can't recognize, and they're a different race kind of than you are. And then then you have new food to get used to, and then you have to get used to a new climate. And then you have to, then you have to work long, long hours. And the volunteers had to do that too, as missionaries did. And, and, and then you had to learn new modes of transportation. I remember going to get my driver's license in Mexico. It took me two days to get it, and I had to go to two different two different venues. Barry, you know, uh, being on a mission is really, in retrospect, and even at the time, I guess you kind of know it, but I didn't really have it much to compare it to. Uh, as far as my work history, you know, working at the Arctic Circle part-time when I was in high school, it doesn't really compare. But it is very much a structured, rigid, disciplined is a nice way of putting it, a pressure cooker of an environment where you are working, oh, 10 hours a day or so, six days a week, plus an additional three hours on P-Day, your preparation day. It is exhausting. And on top of that, on top of that, in well, every mission that I know of, I haven't been in every mission, but I'll bet it happened in your mission the same way it did in mine, is that not only are you responsible for teaching people the gospel, but you're also told that if you slack off for even five minutes and you're not doing what you should be doing or doing it as hard and as diligently as you should be doing, and if there's one person that was supposed to hear the gospel from you, but doesn't end up hearing it because you we're slacking off for a few minutes, then that is on you for eternity. Did you ever hear that? No, not until I got home from my mission. But I'll tell you what, I was taught that we were on a mission because we needed to send the message and the message was urgent because the end was not very far away. Remember, we're an end of times church. And, well, we used to be sort of our nominally now. Yeah, and... and, and uh, <laughs> They're renovating that temple to last a lot longer, you know. I know it, but wasn't that a, it's it's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? Yeah. On one hand, we're in the eleventh and a half hour, based on what President Nelson said a few years ago. On the other hand, we just renovated a temple that was supposed to make its way into the millennium to begin with, and uh, last through the millennium, and it didn't it didn't quite make it, did it? And now yeah, we're so, renovating it, and so the, uh, now we're hoping it'll last many more generations. But Jesus <laughs> will be back here any moment. Yeah, and so is is the temple holding up the end? You know, are we going? You know, if if until the temple's built, then the end can't come. I mean, what we're, done. what we're going to find out eventually is that the temple actually needed no renovations, Bill. This was a, just a total made up scheme for President Nelson to get a headstone. I'm sure free. there's a revelation involved. Well, there's a question. <laughs> if, if, if if you think of all of the building and work that the Nazi regime did, uh, they not only had a common enemy. But we had Satan and they had the Jews, but they also had to build a, something that made them look big and important. And I think that sometimes the temple does that. And so it's more of a symbol than it is what it is. I want to get back to your your experience waking up with this breakdown. 
But I do want to also mention, because I've been reflecting back on my mission and my time at the Missionary Training Center in Provo, which I think was kind of newly opened then in 1979. But but I remember something that happened. Of course, I'm there for two months because I'm learning a foreign language, but there's all these meetings and all these speakers and all these, uh, you know, talking to you about your mission and rah-rah and pumping you up before they send you out. And I remember specifically there was a speaker in front of a large group of missionaries who was telling all the missionaries, including me, that it was expected that we would baptize thousands of people into the church during our two-year mission. And of course, so at Ammon and Aaron and Book of Mormon figures who baptized thousands were brought to bear to buttress this point and to say, this is what God expects. This is possible. You should be doing this. And, uh, you know, even at the time I'm going, really? I mean, maybe you got us confused because we're not going south of the border where they're baptizing these record numbers in 1979. Of course, little did I know that a lot of that was kind of jimmied, if you know what I mean. But well, at least I they had the numbers. I never saw it in my mission, and we were one of the highest baptizing missions from 1961 to 1963 when I was there. Can uh, you tell us more? Oh, I'm so sorry. I just wanted you to, uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Make your point. I, I, I didn't, I went in too fast. Go ahead. It's okay, because I'm starting to see comments, and I think that what's, what's happening is that what you're saying about your breakdown is really resonating with a lot of people. I suffered from a mild case of depression, later self-diagnosed on my mission. But, you know, one of the things about the mission is you're going out there and voluntarily getting rejected a hundred times a day, yeah, oh, six yeah. days a week and part on P-Day for two years, rejection over and over and over and over. And after a while, I got to admit it wore on me. Well, that's why they had so many psychologists and psych in that in in that Peace Corps thing, it, they were going to be there for two years, and they were going to have to work and be with all that stuff. And the pressure of a of the Peace Corps was tremendous, and they didn't want to put these people in danger. So at the end of the Peace Corps, they took they they called them out. They called a lot of brilliant people out. Said you probably won't make it there, and they, we don't do that for the mission. And so at the end of your mission. Well, hell yes, you're, excuse me, heck yes, you're, you're tired, you know, you're fatigued. And a year and a half in a year, you had this breakdown. Go ahead and talk about this breakdown that well, you had and any retrospective. Go ahead and tell us about what it is that you have figured out about what caused it, what led up to it, what the results of it were for the rest of your mission. Just go ahead and tell us a story. Well, when I was uh, first on my mission, my my particular companion was the president of the mission MIA. And so he was preparing a, a big conference for the MIA. So he and I, I had to spend a lot of time alone while he was meeting with other people. But I mean, I was where he was, but I, I didn't have anything to do. So one time I just picked up the journal discourses off of his desk and I took it with me and I, and I was reading a section that said, and it was Brigham Young talking to the, his people, uh, the Mormon people, and he was saying, you guys have to be really careful because the minions of Satan are constantly surrounding you, just waiting for you to give them an in. So if you if you do anything wrong, the, the, the minions of Satan will come in and take you over. You know, and they'll have power over you. Well, after, after about three or four days, 
of being scared to death. And the fear was excruciating. I'm, a, I'm very much an empiricist and, and, and I believe in cause and effect. And I thought, what could I have done that may have caused this to happen to me? And then like, like this, man, it came that passage from Brigham Young. I must have let my guard down and somehow God has turned, delivered me into the buffetings of Satan. And immediately I thought of that and it made me feel so ashamed that I had done that. I couldn't tell my companion. I never talked about it in my mission ever to my mission president or my mother and father. I mean, my father was dead, but my mother after that, until about 20 or 30 years after that, I could finally talk about it because the shame was so great that I might be under, I might've been under the control of Satan. Okay, so Barry, I want, let me push back on this for a second, because as uh, just a sort of independent voice coming in here, please. And I ask you to do this, man. Okay. You are an individual who for a year and a half has been receiving just uh, almost accolades for your missionary ability. You've been made a traveling elder and you're doing and great. And I was a zone leader at the time I added, you know, when this happened, you know, so yeah. yeah. You are working, working, working. Did it ever occur to you that maybe the problem wasn't with you because you were doing just about as much as any missionary could? Well, you know, for years, RFM, I wondered why my Levi's haven't fit well. And I think I, I worked my butt off to be <laughs> a good missionary. Does that make any sense? I yes. hope it's not too rude, but I've worked hard. But this is what makes it so compelling. Your story is that you are a person who, um, objectively speaking, would not be thinking that you were slacking or that you were doing something wrong, which would allow the Brigham Young quote to be fulfilled, that the minions of Satan have now found an in, a chink in your armor to be able to get in and to break you. And yet, because of, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we all Please do. But Maybe the church it's... culture is, if you're having a problem with the church, then the fault is yours. It's never the church's fault. It's always kinda, your fault. I kind of hated that about being a Mormon. I, many times I went to church feeling pretty good and coming home feeling awful, feeling out that I was getting further and further behind. Yes. And that was before your mission? Well, I didn't think about it. I, I was too wild before my mission. I was... I was I was a believer, but I was a skeptic, you know, and and I gave a lot of my teachers hell. And, and in fact, I remember when I was little, I was hiding in a closet and I'd just run out of my one of my church classes and I was hiding in the closet there at the ward house. And I heard two, two of the uh, members of the bishopric or Sunday school or whatever saying, what can we do with him? What, well, we can't kick him out. What what can we do? And that's how wild I was. But and, and it was I hated I hated organization. I hated being told what to do. And, and I hated that kind of control. But when I became a missionary, I decided I'm going to give it my all. And I, I did because I didn't want to be the kind of person I was at before. But after my mission, I was still very, very much a Mormon. Even though I didn't know how much damage being a Mormon had done to me and, and how much damage. I wouldn't say that the church is toxic for everybody. And I certainly wouldn't say a mission is toxic for everybody, but my makeup and the person I was, it evidently was toxic to me because it almost killed me. Can you tell our audience the story 
that you told me about this missionary companion that you had and a discussion he had with you not long before your breakdown. Yeah. Well, I had this, he was, he was the first president of the first mission training center. When I went on my mission, I went to a, a place right next to Brigham Young's house. It was kind of a tall red brick building. And we sat on our butts for 10 hours or more a day being, I'd like to say indoctrinated, but probably more brainwashed. As I, but I'm talking from looking back, not how I felt when I was there. Other than I hated being there because it was so miserable. But uh, so after I'd been on a mission about a year, they finally came up with a, a mission training center in Provo. And this kid was the first president of the mission training center. Not only that, he had graduated, graduated from BYU with a four point. How does a kid become the president of the missionary training center? Well, he was the, he was the missionary president of the missionaries, you know, like the student body president. Okay. Well, a very different system than when I was at the MTC. Yeah. And so he was, uh, yeah, it sounded to me almost high schoolish, yeah. uh, but, but anyway, uh, he was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I've never probably met another man that I knew was that brilliant. And I really liked him. He was a kind, good man. And, but, and one day I was, we weren't working. He was having some trouble. And so instead of going out to knock on doors, we went over to a river now we're in a place called in Sinaloa and it's very humid and hot. And we were walking down this river and, and we would talk and he was feeling some depression. And I kind of was too. I, my mission was getting really heavy on me. And when we got home that day, he said, Elder, I got to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, I don't believe in the church anymore. He said, I shouldn't have come on this mission. I need to go home. Well, that shocked the hell out of me. Well, not quite from my story, but anyway, it shocked a lot out of me. And, and it really bothered me. And so the next day I called my mission president and he said, well, bring him up there, Mosillo. And that's probably about a six, 600, 500 mile trip. So I went up there, Mosillo, and took him there because he had to be shipped home. And I, I thought I was okay with everything, uh, but I had been shocked by, by what he said. And he'd given me one of the reasons why he didn't believe. And I just kept that to myself and didn't think too much of it. And when we got to the mission field. Wait a second. Mission, was, I'm sorry, Barry. What was the reason he gave you that he well, didn't he's, believe? He, he's, he talked about windows in the. Uh, the Jaredite barges. Jaredite barges. He said that windows, glass wasn't even known then. And he said, and he said, and they, and they couldn't have put cloth over that. So, and it says in there, dash them to, it will dash to pieces. Well, the only thing I know that dash to pieces may be cloth or, or a piece of wood or some glass. And so he said, and, and so he put that in my mind. No, he gave it to me. I put it in my mind. I accepted it. And when I got to Hermosillo, the mission cook came up to me and she was smiling. She said, Elder Richens, I know why you're here. And I said, Why? And she said, you're going to be the new AP, the assistant to the president. And I said, I don't think so. I said, I came from a totally different reason. But I had wanted to, I had coveted that job. I wanted to be chosen as one of the president's AP. I thought I might be qualified to it, but, but that was just my ego. 
but I had coveted it. And so when I find out, found, and that's the first time I found out, later I found out that I wasn't chosen. And that was kind of a shock to my ego. But that was just another straw on the camel's back. And so on the way home, they gave me a new, a new companion, a wonderful kid from St. John's, Arizona, uh, one of the nephews of Stu and Mo Udall. And, and he and I went, went, back, to, uh, went back to our, our city. It was a small town in Sinaloa. And on the way home, we stopped at Los Mochis. And that's where I had been before. Uh, and, but I, would, but I, I was moved down to a place called Guasave, 40 miles south. So we stopped on the way, and that's when I went to that mission party and enjoyed the missionaries and the, and the branch members. And that's when I went to sleep that night, happy and content. And the next day, I was broken. I didn't know I was broken, but I was mentally out of it. And my later, my, my mental health people, which I, I still see my psychiatrist quarterly and my, my psychologist monthly, that's how that's how messed up I am or was. I'm very healthy now, and very 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 happy to be healthy. But uh, I had dissociated. When you when you have a breakdown and stuff like you dissociate, you take your you don't you're not part of your body anymore and your mind and all that other stuff. And so I had dissociated and and I didn't know what was going on with me and I was scared to death, man. I was scared. And and I and and. I tried to go out to work. I took my companion home. We got home really fast. We took the bus and got home. And I said, let's go out and knock on doors. And we went out and knocked on doors. And about an hour later, the fear and the shame and the anxiety was so great. I didn't know what to do. I could hardly sit still. But when I tried to stand up or do anything, my legs felt like rubber. And I could hardly walk. That's how great the fear was. And so I went home and we sat around for an hour or two. And I said, okay, Elder, I think I'm all right. Let's go out and knock some more. And we went out. Hour later, I was home. And I couldn't function as a missionary anymore. I hadn't lost my testimony. I still believed everything. But I didn't know I couldn't function. So I started feeling guilty that I, a Mormon missionary, was not doing what I was supposed to do. And pretty soon I, that made me feel guiltier and guiltier. And the ball started rolling like that proverbial snowball. And, and, uh, and, and pretty soon I felt so bad about myself and the fear, the fear was over, almost overwhelming that pretty soon I thought the only thing I can do now is kill myself. What good am I? I'm useless. Let me ask you right now, did the thought ever occur to, occur to you just to go to your mission president and express your feelings to him and try and get some advice or counsel? Or oh, maybe even just, you know, go home either permanently or for a short period of time to recuperate? No. Oh, hell no, RFM. Why not? I, I was so ashamed because I had figured out in my sick, sick mind, which was incapable of rationalizing at that time, I had remembered the story that Brigham had told, told his members. And I, I figured, well, maybe I'm under the influence of Satan. Maybe the Lord has turned me over to his buffetings because I had never experienced such excruciating, excruciating mental pain or been so afraid or under so much anxiety or shame. And there was no way in the world I was going to tell my companion what happened to me. I didn't ever talk to him until about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I went over to St. John's. He was a county attorney. And I, 
so we sat down in the court in county courthouse. And I said, I got a story to tell you. And I started telling what I'm telling you right now. But that's the first time I ever talked to any missionary from my mission. And because I was so ashamed and I didn't want my mission president to know that I might be under the influence of Satan and how evil I was. And then when he, he called Gordon Hinckley, who was in charge of the missions, and Hinckley said, well, send him home for three weeks and ha have him checked out, but make sure he comes back in three weeks. Make sure he comes back. So I went home and my mission, uh, my, my doctor there was a Mormon too. And I think he might've been a bishop at one time or a state president. But as I, as I, as he was checking me out for anything that could have happened to me because I was really out of it. He never checked me from, from my head up, but he checked me from my head down. Remember, this is the same Gordon B. Hinckley. When he went on his mission, he wasn't thrilled about it either. And he wrote his father and his father told him, um, forget yourself and go to work. Right. So there's this idea that, on your mission, you're you're kind of to set yourself aside. And we don't really have a good history in Mormonism of suggesting that people have access to therapists or counselors, uh, life coaches. We there, None of that's real. Like Mormonism says there's the local plumber who speaks to God for you, and he's the guy to go to, or your mission president's the guy that speaks to God for you, and go see him. And in his real life, he was a business executive, but none of these guys have any training to to help you deal with the issues at hand. And I loved my mission president. He was a decent, decent man. Yeah. But did you think that his power of discernment would be able for him to diagnose you correctly and the problems you were having? As I was losing my faith, and I, I hung on for a long, long time, but I had lots and lots of, of things on myself, and it was getting really fragile. One of the sad things in my life was I realized that neither Gordon Hinckley nor my mission president had any power of discernment whatsoever. If they had known, they would have known I was near, nearly dying. I was, I was completely afraid and paralyzed with fear and shame. And I, I want to tell you, RFM, I, after, after my doctor got through with me, he said, I can't find anything wrong with you, Barry. So I went back to Mexico. Nothing changed. I was still as sick as I was when I left Mexico mm. three weeks earlier. And the last year of my mission, my wife hates me when I say this. She hates to hear me say it. But it was almost pure, unadulterated hell. And I stayed. I, there's no way I was going to come home and shame my parents, my mother, and not my family, or my ward members. And, there was, and so I doubled down and worked harder. And I worked so hard, I became super scrupulous. And I wouldn't break any little law at all, but I couldn't rationalize. And, and some of my mission present uh, companions had to think this damn guy is crazy because how, I was. How did your scrupulosity manifest itself? Well, if you've ever been to Mexico, it's not a very clean place. And there was garbage everywhere in, uh, in all the villages and, and towns I lived in. And one day I thought, well, I better start helping clean this stuff up. And I started picking up garbage. Well, I would have had to work for a day, for a year, just to clean that block, and I, so I, 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 and I, my OCD was had complete control of me, and the other things I would, if I was on a street, and rather than walk across the street just to get to the other side and knock on a door, I had to go to the end of the street and cross out at the corner because that was right. I didn't want to break any more laws, Bill. I didn't want to break any more laws that might 
put me back into the clutches of Satan. And by laws, you're talking about commandments of God. Yeah, rules, rules, rules. That's what I should have said. Any more rules or mission commandments. Yeah. And those mission commandments were like real commandments. We were expected to live them. And the thing I also hated about my mission is I think about it now looking back. And remember, guys, it's been 60 years ago. But one of the things we had is we had a mission. We had a mission magazine. And in that magazine, everybody had to write into the present and tell what they were doing, how many, how many people they'd visited, how many contacts, how many baptisms, and how many hours we'd worked and how many investigators we had. And it was all shown out for the whole world to see. And one day, I uh, soon after my, well, while my mission companion that went home was with me still, we had, I was writing my report to the president and I hadn't finished 70 hours. And guys, we were we started at about 58 hours and then some kid got a, a girl pregnant in another mission. And so they decided uh, that, that we missionaries were not uh, being busy enough. Well, and it sounded so they, like that mission, that other missionary was pretty busy. Well, the, at least if he got excommunicated, he, he, he paid. He, he didn't. It wasn't too bad. I'm, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, where's uh, my laugh track, Bill? Yeah, I know. But I'll, I have to play I'll, it. I'll, huh? I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it for you. But anyway, so they changed it, and all of our missionaries under Marion G. Romney, who was the apostle over us, had to work seventy hours a week in contact with mission with more members somehow that meant even sunday and we were working i boy i, I now i get a little upset i start wanting to talking like i talked when i was around the cattle uh we were walking working our butts off and and i so i was doing my assignment and writing how many hours i'd worked that week and i only had 76 76 uh, 67 hours in contact with with non-members and three of those hours was when I was working with my buddy who was so depressed and I didn't know what was going on in his mind. But I felt so ashamed for lying to my mission present. That was one of the things that I thought I must have done for the, for Satan to take over me, take me over. When did you lie to him? Did you fudge I the just, numbers up to 70? No, I just, I, yeah, I told him I, 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 I wrote down 70. Okay. I, I, I was too ashamed to write 67 down. So like I you're in a double bind. You're in a double bind. You write 67 and you're shamed to do it. You write 70 and you're a liar and subject to Satan's minions. Well, that was how I felt. And remember, you have to know my personality. And so I can only speak for me. And the reason I wanted to talk to you guys today was I wanted to share my experience in case other people might have gone through something like this or, or can relate to me or to my experience because I want them to know I'm a pretty normal guy. In fact, my psychiatrist just told me, she said, you know, Barry, you're healthy. And she's retiring so she could talk to me about my mental health. And she said to me, Barry, after she was no longer my doctor, she said, I think one of the most important things you ever did for your mental health was leave your church. Mm. And so I'm here to, to just share this with people out there who may have, uh, because I, I because. I've thought it so many times in my own mind and shared it with friends. But I thought, I wonder if anybody out there may have had an experience like mine. Because I know I have a brother-in-law who has, he's not alive now, but he, uh, within the last 10 or 15 years, he, he was, he's a, he's a psychologist. 
and he was hired by the no called by the church to be a missionary in Europe, and they they had a group of psychiatrists and psychologists to work with missionaries who were having all kinds of mental health problems. Well, in my time, there was nothing like that, right. and so I wanted to talk to people who might have had troubles on their missions or might have had great depressions and and might have might have uh, just hurt so bad. You know, when I came home from my mission, I had worked so hard that I was falling as before I got released. I was, I worked in the mission home, uh, RFM and we would, I would, I would work all day in the mission home. And then after supper, about six o'clock, we were expected to go out for three or four more hours and teach and track and teach the gospel. And so whenever I would go out sometime, especially if my companion was given the lesson, Sometimes, as soon as I sat still, I would fall asleep, and I'd catch myself going like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I, I, there were times I knew I went completely to sleep. And so my mission president, uh, someone must have my my companion must have told him, so he thought I might have narcolepsy, but it wasn't narcolepsy. I know now it was I was so doggone fatigued and tired I couldn't sit down because if I did, I was gone. So. I didn't want to go home a failure, and I, so I worked extra hard to be an exemplar. Yes, and Barry, we're coming up on an hour. We're actually at 15 minutes now. I want you to be sure that you share the story about what it was you learned in Mexico that ended up being a problem when you finally read through the Book of Mormon. Yeah, you know, Bill, like you, I was not much, I wasn't too bright a student. And I know that you're a very bright man. I've listened to you. I think you could have been a one hell of a lawyer. I do. But I, I, I thought I was dumb. So when I went to Mexico City, what I, my reason for going was I was trying to break up from my girlfriend that I was crazy about. That was my purpose for being there. But some guy handed me a history. My professor handed me a history book. And for the first time in my life, I read a, a school book like it was a novel. I could not put it down because I was living where the Spaniards had fought, where the Aztecs had fought. I've been to the, the big old mountains outside of Mexico City where they had to go in the volcanoes to get more saltpeter, make more gunpowder. I had, I had been to the, so many places and I became a student of Mexican history. And I've worked, my, I worked hard to become one. And over the years I've, I've continued that. Uh, but, uh, I was listening, I was reading a book that I had to read for the course. Uh, uh, it was by one of Cortez's lieutenants. And he's talking, they're fighting on one of the causeways going out to the island called Tenochtitlan, which where was the was the capital of the Aztecs out, out in this big lake called Texcoco. And and so Diaz is talking about as they're going through, some some of the Spaniards ahead of him had been killed. So the, the Aztecs would cut off their heads with those sharp uh, obsidian weapons they had. The and then they'd roll them, Yeah, and they would, yeah, yeah. And they'd roll them down the causeway and it would scare the horses and it was, and it would, they would buck off the Spaniards. The Indians had never seen horses, nor had they, were they familiar with still. And so the, the Spaniards had, had, uh, what do we call it? armor, chest armor and helmets, and they had big swords and they had big dogs. This, the Aztecs had had smaller dogs, and they were familiar with coyotes and wolves. In fact, coyote in Aztec just means small wolf, but uh, or coyote. But anyway, 
and, and so Bernas Diaz de Castillo, Steel, the writer, said they had never seen horses and they'd never had to deal with steel. And he said, that's why we had such an advantage over them. And plus, they also thought we might be the white god that's going to come back someday. The one that they called, uh, uh, what's, what, tell me the name of the feathered servant. Oh, my gosh. Well, that is, uh, it's not Kulkulkan, uh, that's a different one. It is no, the Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl. Quetzal means it's a bird that has big tails, and Coatl was a snake. And so it was a feathered serpent, and they, they thought that that was Christ. Well, you've got three things going there. You've got the Quetzalcoatl, the returning white god, which is definitely a plus for the Book of Mormon. On the other hand, you've got steel, armor. And, and horses. And horses that the Native Americans, the, uh, the Aztecs, have never seen before in their lives because they've never been there before on the continent. Yeah. And so and then so you went through the Book of Mormon on your mission. Well, on my mission, I had never, I never read the Book of Mormon. I, I certainly have memorized an I Nephi, but that's the only verse I still have memorized. But I had read it, or I Nephi having been born, whatever. <laughs> but but uh, I, for the first time, I read that there were no horses, but there were horses in the Book of Mormon, and that there was steel in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. You, you've and, heard of tapers, haven't you? Oh, hell, I tried to ride one, but they're so damn mean. You know, Bill, you just don't mess with those. Yeah, they're really? too small. They're too small to operate as a horse, but it's the only animal we've got. So we have to assign it somewhere. And Are you kidding no about trying to ride one, Barry? And, and, no. <laughs> yes. Okay. And, and their withers are so small when they put their head down, your saddles falls off. So it was awful. It was awful. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend one to anybody. But I'll tell you one thing that I did. I, I did think I thought. I'm here to be on a mission. I really want to be a Mormon missionary. I want to be successful. So I put that fact that I knew that there were horses, weren't horses here. And I knew that there wasn't steel here. You're gesturing, you're just on the shelf? I'm putting it up on the shelf, yeah. Okay. And I put it up there. And that was my first item on the shelf. And, and I became quite a student of the Book of Mormon. I've read lots of books about the Book of Mormon. So when I was 75 years old, I was, my shelf was creaking and I tried to stay. And I have a lovely wife who's still a Mormon and, and I love her very much. And I didn't want to hurt her, but finally I couldn't deal with the cognitive dissonance. So I just one day, and I thought if I keep hanging around the church, I'm going to get excommunicated because I'm going to tell things I know and I'm going to bring them up in discussions. And I knew what that would bring. So I just said, I'm resigning. I about broke her heart. But I had, to, I had to be true to myself. But what happened one day, my cousin had told me some cute little story. He said, go on the Internet. I've never been on the Internet. I, didn't, I never used it, even though I was a college professor and had a computer in my office. I used it for other things, but I'd never been on the Internet. But it, he, and by his cute little, oh, there you are. I tell you, that's me. And when those guys bend down, Bill, to get water, you go into the tub with them. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't ride that thing. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, uh, I was look, reading this cute little tidbit my, co- my true boot TBM cousin had written. But over on the other side of the page was something about two boys meeting, meeting with an archaeologist. And, and these boys asked this. I said, I went over there just completely ignorant. And I plugged in and I said, uh, what do you think about the Book of Mormon? Is there any evidence anywhere that, that proves that the Book of Mormon is true? And the, and the man said to, to the boys, he said, has anybody anywhere 
ever found any physical evidence that that uh, to to uh, substantiate the Book of Mormon. And I thought, you know, I have been to almost every archaeological major archaeological site in Mexico. I'm a student. I was a student of Mexico. I was a student of Mexican history, and I've been to all of those archaeological sites. And I have been all over my red stuff, and I had good guides. I never once found any evidence that there it's to indicate there was any other civilization there than the Native American civilization. So when I heard that story, it hit me like a ton of bricks. All of a sudden, it was like all the air went out of me, and I go, oh, he's right. And that was the end of my believing in the church. That that moment, it was a eureka moment. Well, I will tell you, I had no an, an experience on my mission that was uh, nowhere near as traumatic as yours. There were certainly elements of it. There were positive parts as well, like you've expressed about your mission. So I was really surprised about a week or two weeks after I got home to have a nightmare. And in the nightmare, I'm in a plane. And I know, as one will often know in a dream, that I am on the plane for a reason. I'm heading back to Japan and I have to go back and continue my mission. And the feeling it evoked in me in this dream was so extreme that all I remember is that I put my face up against the little window there next to my airplane seat. And I was screaming, no. And I was so glad when I woke up to find out it was only a dream. Well, if it'll help you to feel that that was a normal dream, I can't tell you how many times I dreamed that I was back on my mission and I didn't have a testimony then and I couldn't testify. And it was, they were nightmares. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to prove to my mission president, his wife, that I was still a good missionary. But I wasn't. In, in my dream, because I had no testimony and I hadn't left the church yet. <laughs> that was weird. Right. Well, it was a, such a surprise to me, not only to have the dream, but then decades later to find out that I'm not the only one who had that kind of a dream and frequently on a plane heading back to the mission field and feeling like, no, but, um, but it also made me think, you know, I have a lot more repressed negative feelings about my mission that I'm allowing myself to acknowledge consciously. Hmm. Yeah, there, There's a lot going on, right? Like there's so much uh, programming into how we frame ourselves. Again, this is after Barry's mission, but you've got the Marky e. Peterson quote and Marion oh, G. Right. Romney both saying that it's better to come home in a hearse than to, than to, than to, you know, lost your virtue. And by losing your testimony on some level, you're losing your virtue, right? You're losing your goodness in Mormonism. Well, and not only that, you're suspect. Yeah. And, and losing your testimony is very close to becoming an apostate and an apostate is disloyal. And I yeah. didn't want to be disloyal to anyone. In fact, I had an experience with our, my mission uh, mother. I, I think I thought of her that way. And she was very close to me because I took care of the kids all the time. And that's the mission president's wife, right? Yeah, whom I loved. I I, I loved those children and because uh, I had a little brother the same age as they were. And uh, But she was giving a talk on, on a mission conference, and we were all gathered in the mission home. And she said something, and I don't even know what it was, but somehow it was about being loyal. And all of a sudden, like that, it hit me. I'm disloyal. I'm no good. And all of the strength and the virtue went out of me 
And I felt like that kid that had just had that break, that breakdown. And I was, I was trying to, I was trying to stand and I went up to my bedroom and I, and, and I wanted to masturbate. And I'd never masturbated on my mission. And I felt so guilty that I later, uh, I, I started, but I couldn't. And so I went and talked to my mission president and I felt so awful. But the shame of being disloyal was so great with me that I never talked about what had happened to me for about 20 or 30 years after my mission. And part of it was I didn't want to embarrass the church. Talk about, talk about a, talk about being inculcated. I was, I was all in. Yes. And now we look at it from this point of view and we can see that we didn't want to embarrass or hurt the church that is basically causing this trauma in the first place. Well, I was so in that one of the greatest things I felt when I left, and I think I've heard Bill say this, and probably you too, uh, R. Excuse me, R-F-M. <laughs> I was just giving you a nickname, buddy. You can call me R. Okay, anyway, and, and so I, when I, I felt betrayed, when I, when I realized that the Book of Mormon wasn't true and the church wasn't true, and the history that I had been taught and all of that stuff wasn't true. And I, I'm a, I devour books. I read and I study. And I and because, you know, as a as a teacher of world literature, I had to know the the Old and New Testament really, really well to be able to talk about them. And so I I did deep dives into books and stuff like that. And all they did, especially the Old and New Testament, just took me, made me a complete unbeliever in Judeo-Christian ideology and all I had to do is remember the Book of Mormon how many times I've read it and there's nothing in it there that I found worthy other than some maybe some neat verbs uh, verses that Joseph had taken out and put in there so I felt betrayed I had given all this money remember I'm 75 I'm wrinkled now but I was wrinkled not quite as much in but I was an old man then and had I died before that I would have been a, still a member of the church you know, gone to heaven, believer. But it, I felt so betrayed and so lost. The anger almost overwhelmed me. And, and for so long, I was overwhelmed and I felt betrayed by these people that were supposed to be so wonderful. So that's five years ago. What did you do with those feelings? Are you still experiencing them? Well, I'm pretty much healthy. But I'll tell you, about that same time that I retired from the my job and, and uh, 41 years and, and retired from my church of 75 years, about a, six or seven months later, all of a sudden I started getting really depressed and the anxiety and the depression was overwhelming me. In fact, it overwhelmed me so much that I had myself committed to the psych ward at the local hospital because I knew if something didn't happen to me that day where I'd be protected, I'd be dead the next day. That's how great the pain was. I even had 11 electric shock treatments. They didn't hurt, and I was grateful to get them. And I think one of the reasons I'm so healthy today is they might have worked a little bit. But and those are uh, to the brain. Yeah, yeah. I had to go. I had to go to the operating room. I had to have anesthesia. I had to have all of this stuff to do it. So I don't even remember what happened. I never felt anything. But I was there, and I was. I had to. And so I spent 
three or four months there so that I could still have the shock treatment so I have to go home 100 miles and come back 100 miles every other day. And when I got out of the hospital, my, my doctor said to me, he said, Barry, we, we've done about everything we can for you. We can't help you anymore. And I still had these horrible feelings inside of me. And all of a sudden, the thought came to me, I'm going to die. No, I'm just gonna I'm gonna die by my own hand. And all of a sudden I got this joy and I was so happy. So the next day I asked my wife, sweetheart, I'm gonna die today. I'm gonna go sit in the lounger and put it back. Will you sit here until I die? So I had taken a couple of bottles of pills and you know, I was full of it. And I was unconscious, and my wife said, Hey, wait a minute, I'm not gonna lay there for that lazy be something to die. I don't want to get in trouble because she could have been a murder or an accessory to my death. So she called the ambulances. And I woke up that night in the same hospital that I'd come home from two days before. And when I found out I was still alive, I was so angry and so disappointed because I'd finally, after all these years, got the courage to die. And so... And the, and the reason was, for your distress and trauma and wanting to end your own life was what exactly the betrayal? Shame, shame, depression, anxiety, and fear. And it was and it, this. And when, once it would start, then the, uh, to keep it going, the PTSD would kick in, and my obsessive compulsive uh, mind would kick in, and I could not be rational. Although I could sit there in that hospital and think everything through, my rational mind would never grab it. Right. And so, so the pain and fear would come back. And so I spent at, in the next three years, I was hospital three more hospitalized three more times. And then after one time, I finally told my wife, get me out of this hospital. I got to come home. I don't give a damn what's going to happen to me. I got to get out of here. And one day it was like, if you can, guys, if you've ever been in a dark room with a, with one of those blackout curtains and someone opens it a little bit, you can see a sliver of light come in the next day, a little more, a little more. That's how my life came back to me. That's how the desire to live once again came back to me. And it was hard. And I had to make covenants. And I didn't want to leave my children or my wife with that legacy ever again. Barry, what do you attribute, if anything, this recovery and the sliver of life that gradually opened up again for you? I, I think perhaps age. You know, RFM, when we, when we know better, we try to do better. And as I matured, I started being able to talk about it. But I also, I still, every night, every morning, I still take mental health pills, antidepressant, anti-anxiety pills. I don't suffer from it right now. And my, 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 uh, my psychiatrist, she said, Barry, tell them you're okay. Tell them you're doing well. And tell them that in your life, you've done a lot of things. You know, like I once taught at the University of... Iowa as a graduate student, and at Brigham Young, as I taught Spanish as a graduate student. I once taught for the Peace Corps. I once taught for BYU in their in their semester abroad in Spain. I always was adventurous. Even many times I, I screwed up and I, and I was scared to death and all those things. I kept pushing through. So there was a part of me that wanted to push through, that I wasn't going to give up. But I tell you, that was a struggle. So my... I, I, I thank my medication. I thank good many health people. 
my wife even went on and got her doctorate in psychology. I thank my wife. And I think the fact that she's still alive, uh, that I'm still alive. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to be here if she's not here. Barry, I know that there's a lot of callers who want to talk to you and ask you questions and, and share some of their experience with you. But I do want to ask this one question. You have this remarkable experience, which is just absolutely uh, life opening for you, where you've suffered for so long. And now you're in the hospital again, the umpteenth time. And all of a sudden, the sliver of light begins to open for you. And you begin to see your way out of this PTSD, or at least to manage it in some way and to be able to be happy with your life. Now, a lot of people in that situation would not attribute that to age. They would attribute it to divine intervention. They would attribute it to God. Do you, and if not, why not? I'm going to tell you something. You ever hear of someone come up to a young mother who's just lost her baby, and they're trying to com comfort her by saying, oh, sweetheart, don't you think that perhaps God needed him more than you did? God, that makes me happy, unhappy. That is such an awful thing to say to somebody. And and my my buddy Dave Waite was a was a psychologist at Brigham Young. He, in fact, he was on on York McBride's uh, thesis committee. But he told his wife just told me the other day that he had a student who had, uh, what was it? Oh, muscular dystrophy. What's the other one like it? Uh, cerebral palsy yeah. and he said David he said I can't believe that in the in the life and before this life that I accepted I wanted a body so bad that I accepted to have cerebral palsy and he said don't tell me that anymore he said I can't believe that and so to me I no longer believe in God and by, my, by no longer believing God, I no longer believe in his nemesis, the devil. And so I no longer believe in those things that scare people. And if, if, if I knew that God had caused my depression, I would have hated him forever. And and because it, it was that excruciating to me at times. Not every time, not all the time. I did a lot of positive things, too, and felt a lot of positive things. But if anybody had told me that God was doing that to me to, to prove me, mm -hmm. I'd say, screw God. Yes. You know, sometimes the nicest thing we can say about God is that he doesn't exist. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, it was like being not being a member of the church was like having some change taken off of me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Barry, let's uh, see if we can get some callers in here. I have seen a whole lot of comments. I haven't been reading each one because I've been trying to focus on you and your story, but the comments yeah. that have been coming up, a lot of people are resonating with what you're saying, and maybe some of them would like to call in. Yeah, so this is the Victory for Satan segment. You get to dial in the Mark of the Beast. It is 662-667-6667, or you can dial... 662 <laughs> Mormons and I'm a perfect uh, 662 Mormons. Barry, I got to say, you know, I, I've been kind of sitting on the sideline for this episode, just reading the comments. And there's a, a few dozen where people have said, like, this is deeply connecting with me. This was my experience. Several people said this was my experience. And they um, thought they were the only ones. Yeah. Well, so I, I just, I just being crazy. Being crazy is being alone. I thought I was crazy, and I thought no one else 
had ever experienced what I had. And I finally, when I got a courage to come out a little bit, someone said, oh, yeah, I remember I felt that way. I said, well, God, I mean, God, oh, heck, why didn't you tell me? But being able to find it was probably a normal reaction to something helped my mental health a whole lot. So living alone and, and being not having a group to talk to or other people who understand you rather than go, yeah, 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 uh, uh, made a lot of difference in my life. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to share tonight. Well, part of the culture of Mormonism, and I don't know that it's just Mormonism, but is this idea that if you are obedient, you will be happy. And that's the only true happiness that only true Mormons know by being truly obedient. Therefore, if you're not happy, then it must be because you're not obedient. But yeah, if you're, go ahead. Have you ever thought obedient to what? Well, all the laws and commandments, everything you take, oaths and covenants, the covenant path, Barry, the covenant yeah, I, path. To me, that's just a terrible concept. Oh, I agree oh, with yeah, you. Because I, I, I feel like one of uh, Hitler's brown shirts. Do you? When they, Yeah, when it comes to yes, We want your obedience. And you can only be a part of this if you're obedient to what I tell you. Yes. Right. And so if you are feeling unhappy, then it must be because you're disobedient. But you don't want other people to know that you're disobedient. Therefore, you pretend to be happy, even though you're not. And of course, then you're living a, a fake life with a fake presentation. But that's the psychology, I think, for many of us, including me, uh, as to why we do that. But then we really totally, well, mind F ourselves even further. Because then we go to church every Sunday and we've got all these people who appear to be happy. And it sort of never occurs to us that maybe they're doing the same kind of game that we're doing. They are also pretending to be happy. No, we're not going to do that. At least I never did that to myself. I thought I'm the one who's pretending to be happy. These guys are genuinely happy. Oh, and yeah, therefore, we made our judgment of, of what's inside of us against their exterior. It's terrible. Yes. Yes. And of course, by and large, they're probably doing the same thing. But it makes us, it, it's this like Petri dish for um, depression, for feeling inadequate, for uh, being inauthentic, and just for, you know, the pharmaceuticals or the, the companies that make out big for this. You know, yeah. there's a poem called I Wear the Mask. I wish I could remember it. I used to teach it. Uh, and I, I do wear a mask. Much of my life, I've worn a mask, and I finally decided I was going to take the damn thing off. And and people, I was telling a friend, I'm coming on and said, oh, Barry, are you going to tell everything? And I said, yeah. Are you going to tell the truth? And I said, yeah. I said, but what about your friends? What about all those people who judge you? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is, I don't give a, and you can spell the rest, but I don't care because yeah. I'm tired of wearing that mask. Yeah, I remember once being in a priesthood lesson, and it was the teachings of the presidents of the church, those manuals that we had for a while. Hated know, them. 10, 10, 12 years of those or whatever it was. And uh, it was Joseph F. Smith, I think. And the story about him was that he was always staying busy doing good things. He was always making pies for his wife or for his kids. And he just did everything he could do, you know. And I raised my hand and I said, guys, I... I just, I know these men, I've read their lives. They've got flaws too. And these books are just bragging about how good they are. 
And the reality is I'm struggling to be a husband and a father that's adequate. And I'm just tired of these lessons that point at just these good traits. And as soon as I said that, there was another guy in the room that immediately raised his hand and said, I feel the same way that Brother Real does. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing great either, and I'm tired of these, this overly positive stuff when some of us are just deeply struggling. And after him, then there was two or three other people that said, yeah, me too, me too. And it, it took the lesson in a completely different direction. But we in Mormonism have this idea that our countenance tells, us, tells everyone else that we're Mormon and that we're good. And uh, the light goes from our eyes, right? That's what people say as soon as you leave the church. And we have all these this rhetoric and these mechanisms that are made to um, silence the voices of people who are hurting because it just isn't okay in this community to say I'm hurting. And and anyway, Barry, your story is resonating with me as well. If we have any, I just do want to make this connection because I think it's quasi important, yeah. but that's the fact that the, the LDS church, when we go to church, we go there to pretend that we're happy because we know we're supposed to be happy. And if we're not happy, then we feel worse than we do already, right? It's like it has this doubling or tripling effect in a downward spiral like you were talking about, Barry. I think Christmas is the same thing by and large, except instead of a place that you go to, it's a time of year that comes around once a year. And we all have the myth, don't we, that we're raised with at least in uh, this country, United States of America, and probably other Christian countries, that Christmas is a time when, of all the times in the year, this is when everybody's happy, right? The song's about, oh, I wish Christmas could be every day of the year. And right. everybody's happy and everybody uh, is celebrating and it's wonderful. But and then we come to that. Yeah, oh, I was go just going to say, then we come to that time of the year and maybe we're not feeling that way. But we and have our, this expectation everybody else is, which makes us feel even worse than we would otherwise. How many times had you heard the statement, yeah, Christmas is a happy time, but the happiest people on earth, should, the LDS people should be the happiest people on earth. And I thought, what's wrong with me? Yeah, it is the state inside this country that is the highest user of, uh, what, what's the word I want to use? Antidepressants. Antidepressants, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's as a community, we're not very healthy, and we are all pretending. We all put on our white shirts and our ties and our dresses, and then we nod, nod, wink, wink. I'm the happy one. In reality, we're all struggling with problems at home that we can't even talk about because we can't be vulnerable about the things in our life and the problems that are going on. Because who's going to join the church if I tell people I'm miserable? You know, so yeah, yeah, it, we got to put the image out. You can't you do, hurt the church, like yeah, Gary we, said earlier. We do have some callers lined up. Are you guys ready to do those? I am. Yes. Perfect. So we'll go to uh, Nicola. She's called us a few times. Uh, Nicola, you are on the air. Mormonism Live uh, with Barry. Uh, what's on your mind? Barry, have you ever got to the stage where you felt totally numb? So you just can't feel anything about anything? Oh, it's yes. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. Because that's, that's part of the illness. This week, they just told me this week. I I, I talked to a camp in the UK that I'm uh, got. They said that they think that they've got a whole bunch of stuff I can't remember. But they they said that I was dissociated, and they think they said I'm even dissociated about the state where I live because I told them. I basically told them what had happened to me, and they said. 
And I said, I literally do not even feel anything about it. Just nothing. I, I you know, I understand that. And, and uh, had I not been born Mormon, see, I still love Utah. I still love Ogden, where I was born. I still love the fish in the rivers and hunting the mountains. Although I don't hunt and fish anymore because I'm not, I can't kill an animal anymore. But uh, I love the place. But I didn't come there from another culture and to another place where people are suspect of me. Your accent gives you away. And so people uh, probably expect things out of you or ask you questions and stuff like that. And maybe you've never felt comfortable there. I don't know. But if you don't feel comfortable, that's the truth. That's how you well, feel. Well, I didn't even know that I was doing it. It wasn't until... Bill said to me last week, why are you doing, why are you doing this? Because I was calling in and I'm calling in like I'm a British person. I, I heard me, I, I heard you they, and I could hear the pain yeah, in your voice. Yeah. And I thought, I think yeah, I know that girl. Last, no, last, they said to me this week when I phoned up, because I've got a friend that's in, that's in Welling that's basically doing counselling. And she said to me, Nicola, you, she asked me if I was, I had any, any, and I said, I've got literally no, I've literally got, I just don't feel anything about Utah anymore. I said, first of all, it used to make me angry. Then when I was coming out of the church, I had a whole bunch of stuff that I was feeling bad, but um, basically I just feel numb. So I, anyway, I, thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. Thank that you, Nicola. really answered me that uh, the fact that, uh, you feel, that you feel numb. Yeah. Nicola, can I say one thing? I recommend that you get counseling. And don't be afraid to take medication. I'm getting counselling in the UK now because I yeah. tried it here and it just didn't work. Well, it if really, it works I for just you. couldn't do it because I couldn't relate to any of the people. I tried three times yeah. in Utah to get counselling. Yeah. And I would tell and you... Because I can't never, relate. They couldn't help me. Yeah. I would tell you, I would not go to a uh, someone of your same faith to get counselling from because you might challenge them and almost hurt them and they might not be able to tell you the truth because that they would feel like they were traitors to their own faith. Yeah. So I would go to someone who's completely divorced from you and your culture and get and find the best people you can find. Thank you. Well, the people that I found, the people that I found, the person that I'm, that's helping me right now is somebody that's in the UK, but they've left the church. So they actually have got some idea of what I'm going through. And they also know me well enough to know all of my trauma because they say that I've, I've actually suffered from so much trauma yeah. that they say it's going to probably take me a while to recover. It well, I is think so. a, yeah, it's a community of trauma, Nicola. It's taken um, me 60 mm. years. Yeah, and I'm no psychologist. Really, Nicola, I just want you to know you're not alone. Yeah. I'm gonna no, I'm gonna let the call go, Nicola. We're gonna move on to the next caller, but we wish you well. All right, thank you. Yeah, have a great thank day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Yeah, I, I think if we were to open up, you know, if we were to do ten hours of a show and just have people call in who used to be Mormon or still are and just share the the trauma that they felt in this community, it would be it would be a huge. Yeah. Um, the next call we've got is Ashley. Ashley, you are on Mormonism Live with uh, Radio Free Mormon, Bill Real and Barry. Uh, what's on your mind tonight? Um, well, just a heads up, I'm really anxious right now. Yeah. And I, so I have a lot really of thoughts in my mind. I'm such a fan of the show and both of you and 
your story has been so great to hear tonight. Um, it just is reminding me of a story of my uncle. That's why I'm going by a pseudonym. Um, is because I don't really necessarily feel like it's my story to share, so I wouldn't want it to get back, like, figure out who it was about. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, my mom's brother, he, there's kind of a whole lot of history of how his mental health problems probably started, but they were really triggered by his mission um, because my grandpa was sick with cancer and at the time where he was about to leave on his mission. And in his blessing for his mission, they said, like, if you um, are honorable and you're you know you you're really a hard work on your mission then everything will work out <clears throat> with your family and all those struggles that you're going through right now and so he interpreted that to mean that he was the best missionary he could be that his dad would live and there really was no way that was going to happen that was really really sick um he i think he got radiation poisoning at some point and it just got cancer all throughout his body um so my it, it just really triggered a lot of scrupulosity and stress from my uncle. And then um, my grandpa did die while my uncle was on his mission. And he, I don't think he was allowed to go to the funeral either. Um, and it triggered a lot of like OCD, a lot of um, bipolar issues. And he hasn't really had a lot of commitment to mental health and, you know, addressing his mental health since also had like a bad marriage that was really traumatizing and um i think it's just sad because you know the story we've heard tonight is of someone who was so strong and, and so you know gifted and could push through a lot of things and not to you know put my uncle or anyone else down but that's just not everyone's story not everyone has the resources or the ability to pull through when they when their mental health has been so mm. twisted and triggered um by the church. Uh, it's also interesting. I think that me growing up, I heard this story and I had the duality in my head of, well, that, that, uh, blessing obviously caused harm, but I wasn't thinking now that means something about blessings across the board, but they're unreliable. You know, I think that's, it's interesting. There's all these chinks that in my testimony that I never could address until, <laughs> until it clicked that it wasn't true. And then I could go back and reevaluate everything and go, Oh, there's that little thing. So I guess the question I would round this all off on is, um, is there anything we can do <laughs> for people who still, they haven't really gone through the journey of leaving the church, um, but they've maybe been so harmed by it, they're also not active, and their mental health is <laughs> not well. Do you know what I mean? I just, yeah. I, I'm yeah. sure this is a bigger problem. than, And it's hard because that community isn't really there for people who aren't <laughs> completely yeah. out. Right? Yeah. And they're all completely in. How many Mormons are sitting home feeling the way your uncle's feeling? I One of my dear friends yeah. from Provo, Provo uh, told me a story. Uh, I, I, and I want to tell you, first of all, I'm not gifted. I was just a kid. I was a kid. I was immature. Yeah. Even my, even my frontal brain hadn't connected so that I could make mature thoughts or choices. And I wanted to mm. die. And I felt wicked and awful, but yeah. I kept pressing on. It wasn't because I was smart. It wasn't because I was brave. I did. I had that, or I had that choice, or to die. So, but I would say this: my friend, uh, talking about pain in the mission, my friend, uh, it, it, her great grandfather uh, was married to three different women, and she told me 
that in his family, because of the endogenous, which means endo means inside of yourself, the, the depression that they had in, inside, which was probably genetic and also situational. But he, he said, uh, she said, I have had, he has had suicide in all three of his lines. And she told of a, of a, one of her cousins who had been on, had got depression in Australia. So they sent him home and released him. And he didn't know he'd be released. And he said, well, mom, I've got to get back on my mission. They said, oh, son, you can't go back. Uh, you've been released. And the next yeah. morning she found him in his bedroom. He'd shot his head off with a shotgun. Yeah. We, we should never promise anyone in this church that someone will be healed based on someone else's faithfulness. I and, don't even, oh, excuse me. No, no. And, and, in the, and in that instance, maybe I recognize that faith not to be healed really is the better, the better faith. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I think patriarchal <laughs> blessings can do more damage than they can do harm to the, to a certain person. Yeah. I'm not, I can, yeah. I, and I'm not trying to put, generalize everything. I don't believe that. But I think for some people, they can be detrimental and some blessings can be detrimental. And that's highly manipulative because they're all predicated upon your faithfulness to all the laws and ordinances of the LDS church. Yeah. By the way, can we go back to that comment from Leanne? I had seen it up there and I wanted to go back to it because it really hit me that even though this is awful for people going through it, uh, it cuts in a variety of directions and what Leanne Pinrod, and I hope I'm saying your name right. Uh, her comment is my daughter begged me to let her come back or come off her mission. And I pushed her to stay, even though she was suffering with anxiety. If I could only go back three exclamation points. So this is uh, an equal opportunity offender or traumatizer, this type of thing. And parents who push their kids to stay on the mission because they're trying to be good Mormons and having their kids be good Mormons and coming back as faithful missionary Mormons um, and honorably released, right? Missionary Mormons. And then they do things that they would never have done under any other circumstance. And that at some point, sometimes they wake up, smell the Java and they are repulsed. They are, uh, they have these horrible feelings about what they did to their own child. She didn't know any better. That's what I have to remind myself. When I made stupid decisions like and did that, I didn't know any better. And neither right. did she. And, yeah. you know, when I was raising my kids, they get a year older, and I didn't know how they were. And they'd say, Dad, you're not fair. And I said, you guys keep growing. I don't know who you're going to be the next time. Yeah. And all I can say is I'm trying to do what I can. And I think Leanne did what she could. But she, again, was as as innocent and as ignorant as her daughter was yeah, and as her daughter's mission president was. And Leanne, I'm only speaking partially tongue in cheek. This is going to sound like a joke, but it's not really. Okay. I hope you're paying close attention right now. Okay. I radio free Mormon. I absolve you of all guilt for that episode. And, and I want to echo what Barry said, which is you weren't trying to do something that was wrong. You weren't trying to be a bad parent. You were trying to be a good parent. And that's what you thought at the time. Now you recognize that that might not have been the best, well, that it wasn't the best thing that you could have been doing for your daughter. But 
that's okay because you recognize it now. But don't continue to beat yourself up over it, please. You are absolved. When we know better, oh, excuse me. No, I just want to say, when we know better, we do better. Yeah, we've got we've got four other calls here in the queue. I, I hopefully we can kind of get through these and uh, not have this go super long. Uh, I want I want each of the callers. They can hear me too, by the way. So everybody in the queue, uh, just be short and sweet, but say what you want to say, and uh, we'll try to move through this as quick as we can. Sam, you are on Mormonism Live with Barry. What's on your mind tonight, my friend? Uh, hey, um, I just want to say thanks for talking about this, guys. I I feel like this is. Uh, the biggest abuse that church enacts on its members that isn't talked about enough. Um, so thank you very much, Barry, for your experience. Um, I also yep. had a similar experience, um, and my wife did too. Um, and as we were kind of trying to navigate, like, do we kind of stay in the church to make the family happy or not? Um, looking back at how we both felt on the mission and knowing that we didn't want our kids to go through that is what made us feel uh, comfortable pulling the trigger on on leaving the church so yeah that's that's my comment thank you guys thank you my friend thank you sam thank you very much barry are you doing okay what's going on sam said something it just hit me so it made me want to cry what happened what did he say i, I don't it, it wasn't it was just the way he said it and it was something and it went so fast that it, it just it hit me like it was so dear and near and you know when I feel somebody else's pain, sometimes all I can do is cry. I don't, that might sound stupid. I don't know. I don't think it sounds stupid at all, Barry. I think that we humans are social creatures, and when we hear the trauma and pain of others, and once we're to a point in our life where we understand what empathy is rather than making a casserole um, or stopping for a home teaching visit for a half an hour and and leaving someone's home without really doing some real sitting with somebody in their pain and trauma. Like I, I, I can appreciate there's times where I hear people say things and I'm, I deeply connect in the moment. And um, there's certainly a cumulative effect of what's going on here tonight. And I yeah. hope it's therapeutic and cathartic to yeah. a lot of people. I felt a lot of emotion uh, when I was finally reading Leanne's comment the first time and I started yeah. tearing up myself and that's why I wanted to go back to it. But there's a cumulative effect here. But we got three more people to go. Can you? Do you think you can make it through that? Okay. Barry? Oh, I'm fi I'm fine. It, it, I I am fine. It was just that I felt I feel I felt you know when Christ said I felt all of the all of the spirit go out of me or whatever energy virtue. go out of me virtue yeah the virtue go out of me that's how I feel just it felt at that moment I, my arms are weak my hands are weak because it touched me. And I haven't been here this deep in a long, long time. And I've never talked as much about it as I had tonight. So I'm finding it's, it's maybe cathartic to me too. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. And I do want to add here at this point, so the audience knows what Barry knows, which is that your, your counselor is very much in favor, knows about your coming on the show to share your story and is in favor of it and thinks it will be uh, therapeutic for you. That's correct, right, Barry? Yeah, in fact, I, I had my my psychologist uh, who meets I meet with Monday uh, monthly called me the other just yesterday and we talked about it and he said, uh, "What do you say?" He says, "Go on and be tell the truth, share what you know." And in fact, your counselor told you says, "Look, I want to remind you that the one thing that I want you to share 
is all the good things that you've done. Don't forget to share that, Barry, right? Yeah, that's that was my psychologist. when After after she told me that she's no longer my psychologist because she's retiring, and she could say things that a psychologist under license couldn't say, she could have never said to me, I think you're leaving the church was the most healthy thing you've ever done. Right. I just want to note that you in that story where Jesus said, I felt my virtue leave me, Jesus lost his virtue. So yeah. when we talk about like Marky e. Peterson and Mary G. I just, you know, sometimes words, Mormon leaders sometimes use words a certain way and they don't realize they have other repercussions and other stories. And well, anyway, what happened, what did, and what happened to Jesus, Bill? Uh, well, I, he I came home in a box. He, he did. Yeah. Marco, yeah. Marco's our next caller. Marco, you are on Mormonism Live with RFM and, uh, and Bill Real and Barry. Uh, what's Marco, on your mind tonight, my friend? Marco, let me just say one thing first. Hey, the, word, uh, 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 the word virtue means man. So only man can have virtue. Yeah, gotcha. And when Rome was uh, ruled by uh, uh, Marcos, Anto uh, uh, who, who's Mark, Ant Mark Anthony, Octavius Caesar, and Ptolemy, or uh, Paul, well, anyway, it was ruled by a tribum, tribum, Triumvirate. Triumvirate. That means three men. So only a man can be virtuous. So a woman cannot lose her virtue. Well, this is all news to me. This is like the song from The Music Man, The Sadder But Wiser Girl for me. Yeah. Oh, I'm working for Hester to get one more A. But Boom, baby. You got it. They cut it from the movie, but we both know it. Marco. Yeah. Polo. Perfect. All right. Marco, you are on the, on the line, my friend. Tell us what you've got. Can you guys hear me? We can. Awesome. Okay, perfect. Um, this probably will have to be pretty quick. Um, my, I, I um, am starting, I will have started a channel about a book called Neurodivergence. And we actually specifically cover what you guys talked about earlier is masking, the concept of masking. I myself have ADHD, but it applies to lots of different types of brains, so I like to call it. So you've got um, dyspraxia. Um, dyslexia, autism is a huge one, um, ADHD, things like that. And to be honest, there's a lot of Mormons out there who have these conditions who also have to not only mask generally, but also mask these challenges that they have personally. And the, the stress and anxiety that comes from that is, is very, can be really intense. And that's just kind of what I'd like to point out. And then uh, Radio Free Mormon, I met you at the, the uh, Thrive. Uh, so I don't know if you remember a guy with that name, named Marco, but that was me. So that's all I have to say. Thank you, my friend. Marco, thank you so much. Thanks, Marco. Yeah, so our looks like, uh, if I've got this right, our last caller will be Josh. Uh, I'll bring him on now. Josh, you are the final caller for Mormonism Live. You're here with Barry and RFM and myself. Uh, take us home, my friend. Hey, uh, I, I don't know if I can take you home. <laughs> How you doing? Good. Okay, just want to make sure the connection is good. I normally don't call in, but I watch your content. Uh, Radio Free Mormon, Bill Real. I've been watching you guys. I'm one of those uh, less, I don't know whether to say less active, but I was born in the church and, you know, went on a mission. I went to uh, Spain, Madrid. Um, you know, I had a great time there. And uh, i just tell you a little bit, you know, I think throughout all my younger life, uh, worthiness uh, was always, you know, the topic, you know, you, you always go into those bishop interviews and 
you know, they're always asking how you're doing and kind of prodding and, you know, asking all those difficult questions. And, you know, even when I was on my mission, um, you know, there's just the guilt that, you know, for like messing up if you masturbate and stuff like that. It's just uh, unreal, you know. So one time I went to my uh, mission president when I was in uh, uh, McAllen, Texas. We had to stay there for a few months um, for a visa to get approved to go to uh, Spain, Madrid. But, uh, you know, I messed up and, and uh, you know, masturbated. It shouldn't have done it. But when I told uh, the mission president that, uh, it was a big deal. And uh, he was like, I'm going to send you home, you know. So uh, you can only imagine the, the fear and the, and the guilt that somebody can have for, you know, messing up. And then, of course, later on, I, I served the rest of my mission in, in Spain, Madrid, uh, a long time ago. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was months and months without, you know, messing up and, you know, always constantly uh, having a heavy conscience. Uh, you know, walking around in Europe, you, you see a lot of those uh, newsstands and it has a lot of, you know, nudity on it and all that stuff. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know. So constantly you're thinking, oh, I can't mess up. I can't lust. I can't look at girls. You know, I got to be clean. And, and so that type of mindset, I think, uh, you know, being raised Mormon or, or even Christian or, or whatever. Um, but I'd say more so, it seems like in the Mormon faith, the, the, the question of, of, of worthiness and, and, and constantly, you know, being on the lookout it causes a lot of anguish, you know, as far as mental health goes. Um, you know, so, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to touch up on that. And then I'll, I'll tell you guys one, uh, one good story. And, uh, you know, so I just retired uh, from the military. I did uh, 21 years. So it's been a, you know, a long, long time in the service. But when I was younger um, in the military, I, I was stationed in Germany. And I don't have, have any of you guys been to Germany? I have not. I have. Has. Oh, you haven't? Oh, it's a, it's a great place. It's awesome. It's lovely. But, um, oh, it, it is. <laughs> you got to go. You got to go to the October Fest. I'm just kidding. No, I want to go. I, if I if I could get up and get over there, my wife can't travel anymore. She has MS quite badly. Mm -hmm. But if she could, I'd fly to England because I love England. I'd stay in Spain because yeah. I loved living in Spain. I'd go to Greece. Oh and yeah. Then I'd, go to, then I'd go at the by October. I'd be tired and I'd go over to uh, Germany and I'd eat all that damn meat and all that wonderful pastry and drink <laughs> try some beer. I I'm not. I don't have much of a taste oh, yeah. of beer. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> but I envy you for having well, I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, I've been everywhere. Italy, Germany, all, all, all over the place. But I'll tell you one story in, in terms of uh, God and, and worthiness. So, um, so one night I was out partying, having a good time and, you know, doing all the wrong things. Obviously, you know, I was a returned missionary. I remember the church. And, uh, you know, I was at that point of time, I was less active. And uh, I came back around it's probably like two in the morning and uh, I went to the barracks. I was looking, I had my own room, you know, I was looking in the mirror. I was like, oh, look at me, you know, so unworthy, uh, doing all the worldly things. And, and I asked God, I said, hey, God, I just want to know one thing. I want to know whether or not, you know, whether or not you love me. That's the only pertinent uh, question now because, you know, I, I obviously am making all the mistakes. And uh, anyway, so I uh, woke up a couple hours later and went and did uh, physical fitness training. That's what you do. Uh, you know, in the army and, uh, you know, I finished like third place in the run, you know, I was still a tough guy, you know? And, uh, you know, then I went to walk over to, uh, to get something to eat over at the, uh, uh, post exchange. Um, so they got like a food court there or whatnot, you know? So, so, I, so I went over there 
And uh, this lady came up to me and she said, hey, um, I want you to know that uh, that God loves you, you know, right off the bat. So so I guess the, the, the point of the discussion for me is is that no matter what we do as, as human beings, uh, you know, no matter where we're at and no matter how many mistakes we make, uh, God still loves you. And, and, and he obviously told me that through another person. So, you know, I know a lot of uh, people are hard on, uh, on themselves and, and whatnot. Maybe the church is, is slightly culpable for that. Um, but just know, everybody, that God loves you in spite of your mistakes. And everyone makes them, you know, whether it's the apostles, the 70, mission presidents, you name it. We all, uh, we all make mistakes. You know, and that's, that's pretty much the extent of my conversation with you guys. So that's enough. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for sharing that. Can I say something? I don't, I no longer believe in God and it's been liberating for me because I no longer have to believe all the stuff, the baggage that comes with it. But I, I, I do believe that we need to feel that we're loved by somebody and without love, we perish, we wither away and die. So if that was your experience, that was your experience, my friend. And it's yours. Yeah. I just want to say uh, thank you to, you know, RFM, thank you for putting this together. And Barry, thank you so much for the, the giving us your time and telling stories, which, again, I think really deeply connected with the people that we're watching. I was really nervous about coming on, Bill. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know if anybody would want to hear my story, and I didn't want it, and I, and I wanted to come across as authentic. Yeah, I, have I think a, you did. I have a, I have a little meme that said it's called Hail, and the H stands for honest, and the A stands for authentic, and the I stands for integrity, and the L stands for love. And I try to practice that, but I'm not very good at it. And yeah. I was hoping that tonight, maybe, maybe, I might sound legitimate. That's all. That was what I was worried about. Well, you have sounded legitimate, and perhaps more important even than that, you have impacted a lot of people for good tonight. If you, if I could, Bill, I just want to say this one thing, which I feel impressed Please. to say, which is that everybody out there in the sound of my voice, I know it's Christmas time. It can be the best of times. It can be the worst of times. I just want everybody to know that we are one community here. We are one extended family. We are here every Wednesday and reach out to me by uh, message on Facebook. A lot of you do. Uh, please go ahead and do that. I try and get to them as quickly as I can. I'm not always as quick as I would like to be, but we are together in this. You are not alone, and we are here for you in the same way that you are here for us. Same. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. that, that was well said, RFM. I felt a little kind of a, a love emanating for me. Weird. Okay, I'm weird. Anyway, that was nice. Thank you. Anything else, RFM? That's it. Perfect. I'll play this. The search for truth has led millions of people to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, there are some who leave the church they once loved. One might ask, if the gospel is so wonderful, why would anyone leave? Sometimes we assume it is because they have been offended or lazy or sinful. Actually, it is not that simple. In fact, there's not just one reason that applies to the variety of situations. Some of our dear members struggle for years with the question 
whether they should separate themselves from the church. In this church that honors personal agency so strongly, that was restored by young men who asked questions and sought answers, we respect those who honestly search for truth. It may break our hearts when their journey takes them away from the church we love and the truth we have found. But we honor their right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own conscience, just as we claim the privilege for ourselves.